I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's just me this week, but I'm really delighted that we've got two really, really interesting interviews returning as we promised to our normal programming. It's been a while since we've had a a regular episode, what with the mini series on cyberspace and also the bonus episode on the US elections. We definitely encourage you to go back and listen to those if you haven't already. There was something different, but I hope that they were interesting. I found it certainly really, really fascinating to be part of it. But Between now and the end of the year, we're back to regular undercurrents once every two weeks. And we're going to be talking about some different topics this week, topics that we've not covered so far in our series. And I think that there's something to not take our minds off. They're still obviously incredibly serious subjects, but it's just nice to be able to talk about something beyond COVID and the situation in the US. So this week, I had the pleasure of speaking to Titanan Ponsutirak, who is the director of the Institute of Security and International Studies at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. And we spoke about the protests that have been ongoing all year, actually, in Thailand, a huge movement calling for constitutional reform and return to a more democratic structure of government. And it's an incredibly complex picture. There's a long-standing history of political turmoil, which Titanan really takes us through really, really clearly. It was very interesting to hear his take on what's been going on. It's another country that has seen these mass movements that have characterised the whole of 2020 so far. So it was really, really interesting to hear from maybe a country that we don't focus on a lot in undercurrents usually. And then the second interview, another country that we've not spent time looking at in the past, we focus on Bhutan with Dr. Serena Taze, who is uh, a recent contributor to international affairs. Her article is available in our November issue. And Serena was speaking about Bhutan's advocacy of gross national happiness as a measure for development, and really what this case study means for understanding how small states can still achieve influence on the international scene at the United Nations and beyond, and really put forward issues onto the agenda that they care very deeply about. So it was lovely to speak about something like happiness in a year that has had very little of that in political news. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined all the way from Thailand by Professor Titinan Ponsutirak. Titinan is the Professor in Politics at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. Titinan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we're here today to talk a bit about the protests that have been engulfing Thailand, I suppose, in, in, over the last few months. Obviously, it's been a crazy year, of, of course, with the pandemic, and there's been a lot of disruption. But as we've seen in other countries, it's also been a time of great activity in terms of mass movements. And I just wondered whether you could begin by giving us a bit of background in terms of the politics of Thailand. So obviously, it's not just 2020 that's been a a relatively turbulent year. Going back even as far as 2014, there has been some political upheaval in your country. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that and how we got to 2020? It's a long story, but I'll make it short, (laughs) a limited time. Look, I think in a comparative perspective, Thailand is not the only country encountering political upheaval, marked by mass movement, uh, street demonstrations. Um, We've seen this uh, in other countries as well. In the Thai context, uh, this has been ongoing for almost two decades. And if you will, I mean, the basic problem is uh, who gets to rule the country Mm -hmm. and how. In most other places, you would have a set of rules and there would be enforcement of these rules. And typically there would be political parties, some political representation majority opinion, majority will, 
and the, through the ballot box, and then therefore you have a kind of a democratic system. In other places, you could also have an autocratic uh, system where the, the ballot box doesn't count as much, and uh, there's a rule by the few, it's minority, uh, over majority, so it depends. But for Thailand, the problem is exactly this. You know, you have a set of rules that are now crooked and tilted, uh, not to cater to the majority of uh, the electorate, but to enable the minority to rule. But over the past two decades, Thailand has been grappling with this uh, dilemma of, you know, what kind of rules, how to enforce them, who writes the rules, and do they count when they go to the ballot box? To what extent does the elected government have legitimacy, have longevity? Uh, and this has been a, a fits and starts, very volatile process. So essentially, we've had the protests since 2005 in Thailand. 2005, 2006, culminating with the military coup in September 2006. And then again, more yellow shirt protests, very color-coded, 2005, 2006, and then 2008 again yellow. And then um, that led to the judicial dissolution, judicial intervention, the dissolution of the ruling party. And that led to the opposing protests, street protests by the red shirts by the other side. And the red shirts basically in 2009, 2010 were the people who were disenfranchised when their parties were disbanded by the judiciary. So, you know, you have this repeated kind of a cycle now. The yellow side would protest and it would lead to uh, the dissolution, upending the, the ruling party, the ruling coalition government. And then the, the Red protested in 2009, 2010, but then they were suppressed. And then uh, there was the election in 2011. The same side, led by Thaksin Shinawat, this time through his sister, uh, Yingla Shinawat, won the election in 2011, took power. In 2013, 14, she faced similar kind of yellowish street demonstrations that dislodged her government in a military coup in May 2014. So Thailand has had two military coups uh, in the last two decades, in 2006, 2014. Along the way, it has had three constitutions going back to 1997. And that constitution originally in 1997 was supposed to be a, a balanced constitution driven by reforms going back to the early 1990s when the military was disgraced from politics and returned to the barracks by a middle-class-led movement in Bangkok in 1992. But nevertheless, Thailand has been going around this circle because the rules in the 1997 constitution enabled the Thaksin Shinawat party machine to win the vast majority of the electorate. They won the election every time we had an election. Uh, in 2001, 2005, 2007, 2011. And then in turn, the opposing side, the yellow pro-establishment from the established centers of power. And you know, the established centers of power in Thailand are the, the military, the monarchy, the bureaucracy, the judiciary, and they run the place since the Cold War. They came in place since the Cold War from fighting communism, communist expansionism. Thailand was still, you know, in the early 50s, uh, largely an agrarian economy run by military dictatorships. And then uh, over time, the monarchy and military form a symbiotic relationship. And over time, the monarchy rose above and superseded the military. And then, uh, you know, it was uniquely conditioned by the role and the personality of the late king, King Kumipon, who was on the throne for seven decades. Seven decades is a very long time, from 1946 until 2016. So Thailand, as we know it, the political order here has been forged from the Cold War by these traditional institutions. So when they came up against the electoral forces of the Thaksin Shinawat, enabled by this 1997 constitution, the answer they should have come up with was a, an electoral vehicle that could have beaten the other side, the Thaksin side, but they did not. So they lost the election every time, and the way they came back was to craft and engineer military coup in 2006 and 2014. And then that was not enough. So they also had to uh, use the judiciary for judicial interventions and dissolving. Imagine if a major political party in your country is dissolved, like the Labour Party or the Conservative Tory Party. You would have chaos, you would have turmoil, because the people who voted for those parties, they would take to the streets, right? Because they would have been disenfranchised. But that's what happened in Thailand, time and again. The Thaksin side was disbanded twice 
Yet the third party in 2011 still won the election, but this time, after a new constitution, after the 2014 military coup, the military monarchy, judiciary, traditional political order, they came up with a new constitution in 2017, this time giving the military one third of parliament. You know, in Myanmar, they have one quarter quarter of the military. So the military junta got to pick the entire Senate to 50 members and left the 500 members in the lower house to be elected, but then tinkered with the rules to make a, a mixed member apportionment system against big parties. So essentially, the Thaksin party was then reduced, still coming up uh, as the largest winning, but much reduced in size, didn't have a majority like it used to because the rules were rigged that way. And then all these other agencies abetted and assisted, such as the Election Commission, the Anti-Corruption Commission, the Constitutional Court, if you go back and look at their moves, their decisions, it was all one way. It was all the pro-establishment way. So this time, coming to this protest now in 2020, again, you have a kind of a same, same, but different. Same, same meaning that you see street demonstrations again. However, it's different because this time it's not the Thaksin supporters. It is the younger generations that are coming up. They saw all that happened in Thailand. They saw the coups in 2016, 2014, judicial interventions, the crooked constitutions in 2007, 2017, and they've had enough. Uh, I think for them, this is an interesting phenomenon, not just in Thailand, but also you see in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and even Cambodia, Myanmar. I have a hope that this phenomenon of the younger generations rising up, claiming their rights and, and legitimacy and their ability to determine their own political future, that this phenomenon could broaden mm. and, and give uh, democratization in the region, uh, a new breath of life, a new lease of life, and maybe that will be kind of a, a resurgence down the road, not at this time. Because I see younger people, you know, they are technologically empowered with social media platforms, with the smartphones, they have access to information that their forebear did not have. So, you know, now the young people in Thailand, they saw all that happened. They saw the crooked constitution in 2017. The military basically wrote a constitution to ensure that it supervises and run the country mm. for the next 20 years, indefinitely. Yet, uh, the young people, they had their party, it was called the Future Forward Party. Future Forward Party stood for what young people wanted. Young people in Thailand, they want to mark a new chapter for their collective future, which means that no more military coups, no more judicial interventions like the past. They want Thailand to move forward. Thailand's been stuck for two decades, right? And they see their regional peers in Vietnam surging ahead, Thailand is falling behind. Thai economy is, is stagnating. Low growth. This year, deep contraction. Uh, no growth strategy going forward. So these young people, they're doing it for themselves because they have no political future. They have no viable jobs ahead in a country that has gone nowhere. The military government from 2014 to 2019 ran the country to the ground with no openings for economic growth, strategies, outlook. So the future four parties stood for reforms. They had ideas about promoting SMEs, reforming the military, reducing military budget, making military budget and operations more transparent and accountable, and also to reform the monarchy. Because the future four party, younger generations, they come to the conclusion that the traditional political order worked well, perhaps, during the Cold War. It kept communism away. It enabled high economic development unlike our neighbors at that time. But in the 21st century, things are different. Thailand has to have a more democratic system, open political system, run by people who are capable, not by the military. And it has to cater to the, the vast majority of the electorate. So the young people, when they saw that the future forward party was dissolved, disbanded, this future forward party, reform-driven, came out as the third largest winning party of the 2019 election and it was disbanded in short order through a bogus charge, right? So that was the last straw for them. But younger generations in Thailand, I'm talking about generations Y and Z, they came of age in the 21st century. They saw what happened with the two coups and all of that. If the military government had done a better job with the Thai economy and didn't come up with such a crooked constitution, maybe these young people would have gone along, but that was not the case. So with the dissolution of their party, their only hope and their only voice in parliament, in the political system, 
they took to the streets with flash mobs right away. And that was interrupted, paused during COVID, lockdown restrictions. But then that, when the, those were eased in late June, they came back to the streets and on campuses. And since July, they've had big demonstrations in July, August, September, October. And we see this uh, getting traction. A lot of young people are out there, both campuses and, and streets. But it's different this time because it's not just Bangkok. We're seeing young people as young as 15. They're making fiery speeches about Thailand's political future, about Thailand's corruption, nepotism, favoritism, collusion, cronyism, incompetence, mismanagement. And well, you know, they've learned on their own through Twitter, through online information about Thailand's history that was uh, indoctrinated through their textbooks and curriculum. These are awakening forces, and they want Thailand to come out of the 20th century and to arrive in the 21st century, in the 2020s, with a political future, with economic viability, growth strategy, because that's their lives now. I mean, they'll be around for the next uh, 60 years. They've made three demands. One is for the prime minister, the coup leader, who got himself kind of continued after the election in 2019 because of the crooked constitution and the Senate. Uh, they want him to resign, and they want a new constitution to be written. And within that context, they want to reform the monarchy. So what they want is a kind of a level playing field, transparency, accountability, and above all, I see three overarching rationales and motivations. First, taxation. So they are arguing that you know, since the monarchy, the military, using people's budget, right, people's taxes, this is government budget, which has gone into deficit every year since the military coup in 2014, they want to have taxation be accountable and transparent. And they also want to have representation. So representation means the constitution cannot be crooked like this, right? You cannot have one third of parliament under the military selection. How can you have a fair representation? If you don't have fair representation, you cannot have a government that has legitimacy. And the third, I think they want a political future for Thailand so that it can move ahead. And in doing so, I think they want to have a, a genuine constitutional monarchy where the monarchy is within the constitution, subsumed under the constitution. So with a fair constitution that is truly representative and the monarchy within it, and then I think that's, uh, that's where they want to go, and that's where Thailand uh, would need to go if it wants to move ahead in the 2020s. Thank you so much for that overview. We covered so many of the questions that I wanted to come to. I suppose, obviously, you've given us such an interesting picture of how this movement is being driven forward by younger generations. My question really to that is, where do older generations figure in this debate? Are they sort of habitually a bit more supportive of the establishment structures? And what do you think are the kind of factors that are making this very much about youth? That's a very good question, Ben, when you allude to the old and the young. Because now Thai political polarization and conflict is not about the colors. It's not the yellow and red anymore. It's about the demographics. It's about the generations. And there is a generational uh, cleavage and differences, certainly. And I can see this, uh, you know, in my own background. So I, I, I deal and interact a lot with young people. Uh, I myself, of the uh, older before the, the generation Y, so more like Gen X. And uh, in my generation and older, we went through the system. We, we grew up in the Cold War. So it was a very different time compared to the young people I teach today in my classes. You know, they, they never saw the Cold War. Really. So for me, fighting communism in the 1960s, 70s, uh, 80s, and then, you know, Thailand came up from a low point. We didn't have many means back in the 60s, 70s. So a lot of people in my generation and older grew up under the range of King Raman Knight, King Rumipon, the late king. And I think a lot of people grew attached to that range, appreciative of that range, because it, it got Thailand through the Cold War, when communist expansionism was virulent in, in China, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, North Vietnam, South Vietnam. And where at that time Burma was reclusive after the coup in 1962, this neighborhood was very messy and ugly and, you know, conflicted, violent. But Thailand was kind of a, a unique, you know, in its own ability and good fortune to get through all that. 
So I think the older generation, they, they have some attachment to that era. Uh, I would say, you know, seven decades, from 46 to 2016, the first five decades were the decades of development, fighting communism and economic development. So a lot of people who grew up then uh, became kind of uh, respectful of the crown, of the monarchy, of the monarch himself, who also conducted himself in exemplary fashion. The late king never traveled outside Thailand. He didn't go anywhere for the last 49 years of his life. 49 years, no foreign travel, except for one day to Laos to open a bridge. That's it. So, you know, when you see Thai people appreciative of that reign, I think uh, it has a lot to do with his own personality, his, uh, you know, his devotion, dedication, and uh, his uh, even lifestyle and so on. And along the way in the process, a political order came out of it as well, with the military, the monarchy, judiciary, bureaucracy. And at that time, it didn't matter so much. In the 60s, 70s, there was a bit of a challenge to the establishment, established order in, 19, in the early 70s. It was put down in the mid-70s, another student uprising at that time. But it was during the Cold War, communist expansionism, and we had a lot of military dictatorship from 47 to 1973, essentially, and a kind of semi-military rule uh, thereafter. So I think the big change was in the late 1990s, you know, after the economic crisis in 97, 98, the new constitution in 97. You can imagine, you know, as people, as generations expanded and, and became more mature, grew up more exposed, uh, had more means, Thailand more exposed to the outside world, globalization, and so on. People had different ideas. They, they, they wanted more. They wanted the voice. They wanted representation. You know, they wanted to stay in the system. I think Thaksin provided that linkage. He opened up the system by providing the access to state in the system whereby voters were connected to the policies of a political party. Thaksin, of course, at that time was also hounded by corruption allegations, conflicts of interest, and so on. But he did change the game because he connected the, the masses who were previously neglected and marginalized to the political system. And since then, Thailand has never been the same since. And I think that's why uh, they were very, the establishment kicked him out, really. Uh, but this time now, with the younger generations, different. You know, they're not, they didn't vote for the Thaksin party. They voted for their own party, Future Forward. And the generational gaps are uh, fundamental. So the people who are older, who came of age in the Cold War, the last reign, they had a little bit more attachment. I think that people from in the 40s and their 50s, 60s, they, they're a bit uh, conflicted because on the one hand, many of them know that we're now in the 2020s, this is the 21st century. You know, we, we don't want to be ruled by having military dictatorship, crooked constitution, ensures the military in power indefinitely. On the other hand, a lot of people are also unsure and anxious about what would take its place if not the established order. So the young people are suggesting, demanding that you know, a new kind of democratic system would take its place. And uh, this would have to be done through a new constitution. To open the way would have to require the resignation of the prime minister uh, and then eventually remaking, reinventing, remaking, reshaping Thailand through a new consensus. So young people, I think, now they, they, they've shown that they are truly committed to this end. And they uh, have suffered. A lot of people, a lot of young protest leaders have been arrested, charged, jailed, time and again. And uh, there are many of them, by the way. It's not like the, the taxing party, you know, you can count the number of leaders and when they make their speeches, they have a lot of funding. So they have, you know, it was like a rock concert when they had their rallies. This student movement is very dispersed. It's very horizontal. It's not just Bangkok. It's other provinces outside Bangkok. And it's spontaneous, organic. Sometimes you listen to them and you look at them, they have just a little pickup truck with, you know, one megaphone, and, you know, they don't have a lot of means. And they also don't have a clear vertical structure. There are many leaders. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I see now that uh, somehow the generations would have to uh, have a, a conversation and dialogue about how to chart a new future for, for the country. But at the same time, we also see pushback, very strong pushback from the established centers of power. And now I'm afraid that, you know, the atmosphere, the political landscape is uh, heating up again. It looks like the student demands are very steep. On the other hand, there's been no signs of uh, concession from the establishment. So it looks like, you know, we're going to see more tension and perhaps a confrontation leading to turmoil. 
Thank you very much. A couple of issues that we haven't talked about. Well, one is the role that technology has played in this. Obviously, we've seen this in Hong Kong also and, and around the world, the power of social media and, and digital technologies to enable protests to mobilize. But as correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I'm aware, that there, there have also been controls on the internet in Thailand in the past. The government has attempted to control interaction online. And so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how technology has enabled this movement. And then just to sort of tie this up and, and look ahead, maybe, I mean, you touched on it there. I wonder whether you think, obviously, you've outlined that this is one of a long, long history of movements in Thailand calling for constitutional change. I wonder, do you think that this one is fundamentally different? Is, is this time the turning point? Is this different to what has come before? And are you optimistic that change can really come as a result of what we've seen this year? Technology is now so profound. The student-led protest movement would not have been able to coalesce and organize without the social media platforms they use. Social media has been the indispensable instrumental in their organization, their mobilization, their direction and traction of protests. Beyond that, I think also, it's not just the social media itself, but the inventiveness and, you know, the, the platforms like Twitter. Twitter has been a university in itself, and an education itself for, for these young people. I mean, they've been able to read and access information that they didn't know about before. The Thai system has been so kind of rigid and enclosed that social media instruments and platforms have opened up the system and, and really kind of forged a, a parallel universe almost. On the one hand, if you go to school, and that's why student demands also they, they want to reform education. The typical high school or university, you know, the curriculum is outdated and it's very hierarchical. It, it's, it's very top-down based on uh, road learning, spoon feeding, and based a lot on the uh, state-guided curriculum, indoctrinating, socializing students to believe in certain worldview, to have deference, to have respect, not to challenge authority, and so on and so on. That caters to that kind of authoritarian culture, authoritarian rule. But the social media platforms, especially Twitter, you know, Facebook, and YouTube, and on and on, these students have been able to learn on their own. They've been exposed to alternative sources of information. And despite the fake news that we see, sometimes you know, information is also self-evident. Photos, after a while, some photos, you know, it become, they become self-evident. And a lot of things that we were taught in schools, not the case. In fact, the military has been very abusive and uh, there's been a lot of military corruption within the military ranks and so on. So you can, you can get this on YouTube. Thailand has a, for example, uh, military conscription, like you know, a, a draft, compulsory conscription. And then uh, you have to go and pick a ticket, uh, whether you are drafted or not. Uh, and there's corruption, you know, if you pay enough money. And it's been recorded, it's been documented, uh, and you can get it on YouTube. So people know now that the uh, military draft is full of corruption. So, you know, the, the, the younger people nowadays, I think they, they're also angry. All these years they've been taught outdated and they've been misled and misguided. And now they're finding the real truth. So they're a little bit angry about that. In addition to seeing their country being run to the ground and having no future. And that's why they, they've had enough. I can see that uh, social media has had a profound, profound role. Without social media... I think that it might have taken longer time for them to come to this realization. And certainly without social media, they would not have been able to, to mobilize, organize the way that they have been and, and you know, to outwit it, uh, the authorities. You can imagine, as you mentioned, the government, the authorities also have their social media, they have their means, but they, they're behind the students. The students are, are cleverer. They, they have their strategies, their tactics. They, you know, they're very much more savvy than the authorities. So it's a cat and mouse game, uh, but the authorities, of course, have uh, power and, and, and the law in their hands, so they can charge, they can arrest students, they can jail them, and there have been all kinds of charges. I mean, I would say almost countless now. So many people are being charged under different crimes, sedition, and uh, less majestic, less than in the past, but now Computer Crimes Act, uh, the Sedition Act, uh, so you know they, they pay the price. But social media uh, has been the uh, change platform the enabler, profound empowerment uh, that has led to, to these kinds of uh, uprising. 
Moving ahead, this is not the first time Thailand has had challenges against the establishment. We saw this a little bit in the early 1970s. Uh, it was uh, short-lived at that time because there was a communist expansionism that provided the state with a pretext for crackdown and for suppression. But you can also go back to even 1932 when uh, there was a group of civilian and military bureaucrats, young and up-and-coming, in their 20s and 30s, who overthrew absolute monarchy. The motivations leading to the 1932 change was that the uh, absolute monarchy failed to address the grievances of the up-and-coming elite outside the system, meaning that outside the royal family. Government was run by the royal family, essentially. And so the people outside this uh, royal circles, they were sent abroad to study, they came back with ideas. They, they also had an ambition, their own interests. Uh, but they saw that Thailand was behind the times. That Thailand uh, could not, should not have an absolute monarchy, should have a constitution, should have a parliament, should have political parties and some kind of democratic system. So they, they overthrew the absolute monarchy and came up with one. But over time, uh, after World War II, the monarchy reconstituted and regained its footing and rose up again to the apex of society. So essentially, to this day, you could say that there's a kind of a quasi a 21st century absolutism in the Thai political order that I think uh, is out of sync with the times, with the grievances of the majority of the people. Uh, moving forward, I think that some kind of compromise would have to be fostered somehow. Otherwise, uh, we would have confrontation leading to a clash. Uh, but at the moment, it doesn't seem like there would be a compromise. Compromise requires mutual concessions and accommodation, uh, mutual respect, and there's kind of a common understanding about the collective future. We're not seeing that. I think that uh, one side, uh, the establishment, they want to cling on to the past traditional political order with the privileges of the traditional institutions, the military, monarchy, uh, judiciary, bureaucracy. And they're very much uh, in play, in motion now. And it's like a brick wall. They're not uh, showing any signs of giving in or budging. On the other side, the student-led protest movement also has come up with very strong and steep demands resignation of Prime Minister, I think it's uh, understandable because he's been in power over six years now and Thailand has really kind of been mismanaged. But beyond his resignation, what kind of uh, successor? Uh, I think the student-led protest movement has not uh, discussed clearly how would we have another Prime Minister after that. And then writing a new constitution is very difficult. Most people don't know how to write a constitution. So we would have to have a, a drafting assembly and the student-led protest movement, they want to have a representative drafting assembly. So that whole process would take some time, a year or two years, you know, and it's, it's easier to say that we need a new constitution. It's just obvious to have a constitution that is a fair level playing field, representative, with the right balance, the right mix, transparency, accountability. But how to get one, how to arrive at such a constitution is a fraught and painstaking process. And then to, to reform the monarchy is also a very tough and defiant demand because the, the Thai system, because of the long reign of the late king and his role and his accomplishments over that reign, people, I think, are still anxious and divided on what kind of reforms. Reforms would have to involve uh, transparency and accountability of the, of the budget. Uh, that's something that the establishment is not very, is not accustomed to. I think that the student-led protest movement can make clearer terms about you know, their parameters, what they would be willing to countenance. On the other side, is that the establishment, I think, that uh, also need to uh, come up with uh, Plan B. Otherwise, uh, Thailand is going to go through uh, confrontation and, and turmoil. To be honest, I don't see it in the near term. To be honest, I, I see tension reaching confrontation and some kind of a clash in the, in the coming months, just because both sides are far, far apart. And the positions are so entrenched with interests and commitments on both sides. So that may be the case that, you know, things would have to get worse before they get better. But beyond the near term, I do have a bit of optimism that Thai people have been able to uh, overcome all kinds of crises, internal and external. Uh, so it is possible that after some kind of uh, cleansing, catharsis, upheaval, 
that there could be a new understanding, but you would have to emanate from a catharsis of, of sorts. And that outcome could lead to, to a new way forward for Thailand. Titinan Pong Suterak, thank you very much for joining us today. That was really, really fascinating. Thank you for giving us so much of your time and for laying out what is such a complex situation so clearly for us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by Dr. Serena Tace. Serena is a visiting researcher at Newcastle University, and she's the author of a new article in International Affairs titled The Influence of Small States, How Bhutan Succeeds in Influencing Global Sustainability Governance, which she co-authored with Katerina Reitig. Serena, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we're going to have a very wide-ranging conversation, I can already anticipate this, about the role that small states can have in global politics and how states that aren't blessed with the structural power of the likes of the United States or China can put forward their policy priorities in the international space. So your research focuses on the example of Bhutan. And I just wondered if we could start with Bhutan and maybe you could tell us a bit about why you focused on Bhutan in particular and what area we've really seen Bhutan pushing forward an agenda in recent years. Yes, of course. So my interest in Bhutan, it started actually in 2007 when uh, I saw a documentary about cross-national happiness. Mm. And uh, at that time, I noticed that a lot of people were talking about uh, the theory of cross-national happiness, which I thought was interesting and it was new. But what I missed was the practice of cross-national happiness. So I didn't really find studies that examined how the Bhutanese government implemented cross-national happiness in their policies and uh, whether it was actually practiced in Bhutan. So uh, then I thought, okay, this is really interesting. I want to uh, investigate it. So I developed a research project and I left for Bhutan in uh, 2009. And uh, I did fieldwork for six months. Mm. And uh, I investigated, well, the philosophy of cross-national happiness, but also how and whether the Bhutanese government uh, implemented the philosophy in their policies. So it was the start uh, of, of my research on Bhutan, basically. At the end of 2020, as we are, and what a year it's been, I'm very, very excited that we can be talking about happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's going to be yeah. such a positive spin. But I just wonder if you could enlighten us a bit before we go into Bhutan about what we mean by cross-national happiness. Yes, what is course. that philosophy? Cross-national happiness is a concept that was firstly coined by the fourth king of Bhutan, who famously stated in the 1970s that cross-national happiness is more important than cross-domestic product. At that time, cross-national happiness was actually only a slogan. So it didn't have any content or that there wasn't any explanation to, what, okay, what is it then? So then... Bhutanese uh, policymakers, they developed the concept over the years. And uh, these days, cross-national happiness is explained as a development philosophy that promotes a holistic and sustainable approach to development, which balances economic and non-economic aspects of well-being. So important to know is that the concept is also um, explained in terms of four pillars. So the first one is equitable socioeconomic development, followed by conservation of the environment, preservation and promotion of culture, and good governance. And then these four pillars, they are actually included into a GNH index, which is then used by the Bhutanese government to measure happiness and the well-being of Bhutanese people, and also to inform policymaking in Bhutan. How far has it been implemented in Bhutan? So these days, all policies uh, in Bhutan, they are screened whether they are cross-national happiness positive, neutral or negative. And uh, if they are negative, then they have to change the policy. But at the time when I went to Bhutan in 2009, there was only one ministry that actually implemented cross-national happiness in their policies. Mm. So that had 
officially implemented it. And that was the Ministry of uh, Agriculture. But now these days, it's cross-national happiness is everywhere in Bhutan. Your article looks very much at the projection of national interest into the international space. So mm-hmm. I just wondered as well, how much have we seen this cross-national happiness index being picked up beyond Bhutan as well? Have we, have we also seen this becoming popular elsewhere? Yes, uh, it definitely has, also on different levels. So at the level of the United Nations, we can, for instance, see that the United Nations General Assembly They adopted two resolutions on happiness. Uh, The first one is on the concept of happiness in development. And that resolution that calls for a holistic approach to development aimed at promoting sustainable happiness and well-being. And that was in 2011. And then a year later, the United Nations adopted a resolution on the International Day of Happiness. So uh, that resolution declares the 20th of March each year as the International Day of Happiness. And uh, it also encourages uh, member states to observe the Happiness Day in an appropriate way by raising awareness, educate people on happiness, and also mobilize political will and resources to address happiness. So that's uh, on one level. Then on a state level, we can also see that other countries adopted happiness in their policies. We can think, for instance, about the United Arab Emirates who developed a national agenda on happiness. They also have a minister of happiness as well. And uh, another example is India. They have Mm. a a department of happiness. And then at grassroots levels, we can also see that uh, people are inspired by uh, GNH. So there are some grassroots groups on GNH, like, for instance, GNH USA. That's a group in the United States. And they uh, also educate other people about the importance of happiness. They even have a happiness walk. So they walk through different states to raise awareness of happiness. So it's definitely picked up by other people. Ah, so interesting. So I suppose my next question really is how, like to what extent has this increased interest in gross national happiness, to what extent has that been driven by Bhutan deliberately? And if it has been deliberate, how have they gone about it? What have been the major strategies for getting this message out there? Yeah, that's a a very important question as well. So what uh, you can see if you look at the case of Bhutan, they've put a lot of effort in uh, promoting um, the idea of uh, cross-national happiness and happiness. So what was important in the case of Bhutan was the presence of a policy entrepreneur is how we call it. So that is someone who is a very active and visible Bhutanese citizen who promotes the idea of happiness and GNH on an international level. And in the case of Bhutan, we can see that the former prime minister, Jigmeet Tindy, was a driving force behind international mobilization of cross-national happiness. Mm-hmm. Now, what was important about this person and a policy entrepreneur in general is that they are uh, very dedicated leaders and that they have a charisma. So they have to be able to convince other people of the importance of the idea of happiness. So a policy entrepreneur, they also need to align the idea of cross-national happiness with other approaches to development. So they have to differentiate it. And in this case, Tindy, he uh, aligned it to uh, the well-known approaches of cross-domestic product, sustainable development, the human development index, and good governance. And although he aligned GNH to these approaches, GNH is still perceived as a new concept because uh, it combines these elements in a new way. And it also highlights uh, happiness, a concept that is not mentioned by these other approaches. So there needs to be an interesting idea. It has to be perceived as new, and it needs someone who can uh, actively and uh, passionately promote uh, the idea to international audiences. So that's one element of what Bhutan did to influence uh, global policies. So, and then uh, there were also uh, four strategies because in order to promote an idea, a country has to be visible. And Bhutan for a a long time, it it wasn't really visible on the international stage. Mm. Uh, It's also located in in Asia, uh, landlocked between two major powers in Asia, China to the north, India to the south. 
So not a lot of people knew about Bhutan and also not about GNH. So uh, what did they do? Well, they developed a, a national brand linked to GNH, and the slogan of that uh, brand is Bhutan Happiness is a Place. Now, what we can see is that this uh, brand is mainly used by the Tourism Council of Bhutan, which was also chaired by Tinley at that time. The national brand increases Bhutan's visibility in the world, and it also keeps the idea of cross-national happiness alive because it is communicated to an international audience, and it's also used to uh, attract tourists uh, as well. Then what we also saw, another important element, is that Tinley selected the United Nations as the main venue to promote cross-national happiness and to gain policy support. So why is the UN important? Well, Tinley told me in an interview that the United Nations is the most important international organization for Bhutan because it provides a platform for small states to be seen and heard. What Tinley did is he used different venues across the UN system. So he firstly promoted GNH in 1998 when he spoke at the UNDP Millennium Meeting. And uh, that was very important because at that meeting, he promoted happiness as a policy objective. That was the first time. And he also called for a new policy orientation. And that was the adoption of happiness as the ninth millennium development goal. Now, as I already mentioned, Tindley used uh, different venues. So at other UN meetings, he re reinforced uh, the idea that happiness is a human goal that is timeless. So he actively used these uh, platforms. Then another strategy used by Bhutan, which was also important in spreading the idea of cross-national happiness, was facilitating learning. So what did Bhutan do? It incorporated GNH in its national curriculum. And what we can see also later on in the article, we explain uh, the effect of all these uh, strategies, is that universities and international organizations also adopted happiness in uh, their curriculum. What else? Bhutan established GNH centers in uh, Bumtang, which is a district in Bhutan, and uh, that center that uh, offers programs on GNH. So people learn how to incorporate elements of GNH in their daily lives, but also in their businesses. So uh, it offers a lot of programs. And uh, other countries, they have also established uh, GNH centers. One can think, for instance, um, about France and Spain, and there are others as well. Another element, what they did is that uh, they organized the uh, GNH conferences in Bhutan, but also in other countries such as Canada, Thailand, and the United States. Then they also, of course, implemented uh, GNH in uh, local districts in Bhutan to put GNH into living practice, basically. And then the last strategy used by Bhutan is building of coalition networks. And this is also very important because these networks, they help to push the agenda. In this case, the agenda on happiness and what we can see is that the coalition networks uh, established by Bhutan, they are constituted by different type of actors, ranging from scientists to foreign diplomats, so they can work on different levels and push the agenda on different levels as well. What is important in the case of coalition networks is that all the people that are part of the network, that they share an interest in cross-national happiness, a critical view of GDP, as a measure of national well-being and the need for new measures of well-being and progress. Even with these strategies, it's not enough to uh, influence global policy because what is important is also a window of opportunity and uh, also favorable decision-making processes. So in order to uh, promote GNH, Bhutan needs to um, link the idea to a problem and a solution. So the problem addressed by Bhutan was the existing development approach mm. across domestic product, which is very much focused on economic growth and which doesn't really work very well. Now, the solution to this problem was offered um, by the adoption of a development paradigm that uh, is holistic and sustainable. And uh, this development paradigm based on GNH would then promote a higher purpose for development. And the UN, again, was important in this case because the United Nations inspires widespread uptake of policies 
and it is an inclusive organization as it provides a platform for all member states, whether they are small, big, developed or developing. So that was one uh, framework condition. And the second one is favorable decision-making process. So in this case, Bhutan needed support from other countries. And uh, the United Nations is again a good platform because each country has one vote. And uh, as we explain in uh, the article, Bhutan managed to convince 68 member states to support the happiness resolution, which was also adopted unanimously by the United Nations. Oh, that's super interesting. Thank you very much for, for the summary. I suppose my, my next question really is, is what you think we can learn from this case, from the case of Bhutan, for other areas of policy and other small states attempting to promote different agendas. Mm-hmm. What do you think the kind of key lessons are for small states that want to do this, first of all? Well, I think an important lesson from the case of Bhutan is that, well, it shows that small developing states, that they do matter and that they do have the ability to steer negotiations and contribute to their outcomes. For instance, in the beginning, when I told people that I was conducting research on Bhutan, well, lots of people didn't know about the country. And when I explained more, that they were not very um, convinced of the influence that small developing states uh, can have. But I think this case shows that they really can have influence, that, that they are able to influence policies. And with this comes also an important uh, lesson that size is not always indicative of the potential to influence. That's another thing that I address in my research as well. So I argue that a lot of people, they conflate the concept of size and the notion of power, but these two are two different things. And that also relates to my second point, and that is that influence, that it comes in different shades, actually, and that other small developing states that they can also exercise influence. But then again, you have to look at the context. It depends on their goals. What do they want to achieve and, and how do they try to achieve it? And I think the case of Bhutan also shows that you can also be creative, right? Because if I look at the case of Bhutan, I think they are very creative in how they uh, push the agenda on uh, happiness. Mm, and it's mm. a lot of work as well. I mean, I think personally, it's quite impressive. And if you look at the background, because it's a, a small state that's limited uh, material resources, one could say that a lot of things work against the country, but then still here we can see, despite these structural weaknesses, the countries were still able to exercise influence. This success story aside, do you think that another factor that comes into this mix is the type of policy issue that states are trying to influence? Because, I mean, what you've described, I I can sort of see exactly how it would work for something that is related to development, which obviously implicates smaller developing countries in those particular agendas. But I was trying to think whether there's any way that these sorts of processes would be applicable for what some might call the more structural kind of hard topics like, you know, security Mm. or the global economy. I suppose my question really is, is there a limit to the sort of issue that could be addressed through this process? And are there areas that small states can't influence as well as others? I I don't like to say that small states can't do something because they have the same agency as other states, okay? Mm. That there might be limitations. We have to acknowledge that. But again, I think we have to look at the context. So maybe some topics are easier to exercise influence in some policy areas than others. But then on the other hand, you also have uh, small states that acted as uh, norm entrepreneurs who were also successful. For instance, uh, Estonia, yeah, they are advocating responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Mm. Uh, that's a different policy area. Uh, yes. And then you also have Sweden, which also advocates for the prevention of uh, violent conflicts. So there are more examples, right? I do think there is a potential, but the question is then. Um, How do you go about it, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're coming towards the end, but there was one area that I wanted to ask you a, a bit mm. more on. I know that some of your other work focuses on the climate change agenda mm-hmm. and international climate politics. And if I'm right in saying, you also think that small states can have quite a big impact in that space as well. I suppose, could you tell us a bit about how you see smaller states influencing this particular area, this climate politics agenda, and Mm -hmm. what you think is driving that? Well, we're looking then at the Pacific Island states in the area of climate change, but I think they are doing a great job in that area. So as we know, these states, they contribute the least to climate change, but they are the ones who are the most affected by climate change. And what we can see is that they take a very um, strong position towards the issue of climate change. And uh, they're very uh, active on the international uh, level, uh, especially also uh, at the United Nations. I saw this also last year when I uh, attended uh, COP25 in Madrid. I was very impressed by their presence at the COP, but also about their contribution, right? And the initiatives as well that they take. So they really push the agenda. They use uh, diplomacy and they also use science as well. And what you can see is that they represent their interest in um, international climate negotiations by framing climate change as an existential threat, which is also is for some of the islands because of sea level rise and all these things. So they're using a lot of diplomacy and they are pushing the agenda. So one example is, for instance, and I think that really answers also your question, is the Marshall Islands. So it's the smallest country ever to secure a seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council. And what we will see is that the Marshall Islands, they will use that platform to fight for climate and nuclear justice. So they do have a say in that. And that's really important. The fact that they can secure a seat in itself, I think that's also a very good thing in itself. And it opens possibilities to influence policies in the United Nations Human Rights Council. All right. So maybe the Marshall Islands is uh, is going to provide us with another case study to come in, in future years to explore about how small states gain influence and push forward their agenda. Serena, I've just got one more question for you, which is, I guess, slightly projecting to the future a bit. Obviously, we've got a lot of conversations going on at the moment about the international order and how we're moving from a sort of global dynamic where perhaps one state, the United States, was dominant and pushing forward things. And and actually, we're moving towards a space where it's much less clear that there is a very strong sense of there being a global leader on any of these sorts of issues that we've been discussing. So I just wondered, do you think that in this vacuum that's created where where actually we've got a lot more states kind of vying for influence and power. Do you think that's good news for small states? Do you think that's going to provide further opportunities for small states to push forward their own agendas? Or do you think that's going to cause problems going forward? I do think it's a good thing, actually. I mean, why shouldn't small states push the agenda? Why Mm. shouldn't they Mm. step up and take a leading role? on certain issues in international organizations or or in the international community. I think it's more important to ask or to look at who is affected by what and listen to those people who are affected by it. Like, for instance, with the Pacific Island states, right? And with climate change. They experience these issues on a daily basis. So they have all the knowledge, right? And I think in that respect, other states and other people can learn from them. Because, I mean, we do not have that knowledge or experience and, and they they do have that. I think it's good. I, I think we will all benefit from it, probably. Well, that is a tremendously positive way to end this conversation. Serena, thank you so much for bringing us that case study about Bhutan, which certainly I wasn't aware of before reading your article, and also for giving us that kind of positive outlook on the capacity of small states to really change conversations at the international level. Serena Taze, thanks so much for joining us. Serena's article is titled The Influence of Small States, How Bhutan Succeeds in Influencing Global Sustainability Governance, and it's available on the international Affairs website now, and we'll leave a link in the show notes. Serena, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you enjoyed those two interviews and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more really interesting topics. If you want to listen back to our recent mini-series on who rules cyberspace, I would definitely recommend just taking a look at that on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this. And don't forget to follow Chatham House on Twitter and other social media platforms to keep up with the rest of our work. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horson, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm -hmm.